Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to an all new season of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. This season, we're diving into some of the most unusual missing person cases from the shocking disappearance of Charlie Ross to the American Dyatlov Pass disappearances. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Today, we're continuing our series, Shit Out of Luck, focusing on the capture of the Mendez brothers. Residing in a Southern California suburb was a seemingly close-knit, picturesque family. A happy wife, successful husband, and two handsome sons. On the outside looking in, the Mendez family was living a good life, filled with opportunity and promising future. But from the inside, the distance between them was growing wider and wider, which would ultimately lead to a shocking and grisly scene at their Beverly Hills estate. Brothers Lyle and Eric Mendez were born into wealth, living in the shadow of their father, Jose. Jose's success. Jose was an immigrant who came to America to escape Castro's Cuba in 1960 at age 15. Later, he attended Southern Illinois University on a swimming scholarship, but left at 19 to be with his love interest, Kitty. The couple moved to New York, where he continued his education, receiving a degree in accounting also working part-time as a dishwasher. He eventually landed a position with RCA in the records division, signing high-earning acts. He and Kitty soon introduced two sons into the world, Lyle and Eric, born nearly three years apart. The family lived in a million-dollar estate in Princeton, New Jersey, where the boys attended Princeton Day School. While they filled their time with soccer and tennis, their father was a very serious businessman. And as his career in entertainment continued to thrive, he decided to move his family to Los Angeles, where he began working for International Video Entertainment, later known as Life Entertainment. They first lived in Calabasas before moving to Beverly Hills. Kitty was generally well-liked, while he received mixed impressions. Meanwhile, the boys began their way down what would become a troubling path. Eric befriended another teen named Craig Signorelli, the son of a prominent TV industry executive with whom he played tennis. After being taunted by members of a rival high school, both Eric and Craig were beaten up severely in a street fight deriving from the heckling. The two friends remained close and eventually co-wrote a screenplay titled Friends. 
Ironically, the plot involved a son murdering his parents for their inheritance. Along the way, the brothers experienced two serious run-ins with the law. The first was a burglary at a home in Calabasas, and the second was a grand theft at a house in Hidden Hills, amounting to over $100,000 in stolen money and jewels between both homes. Their father hired lawyers for both, both of them and dealt with the crimes away. He would deal with any prickly business problem. $11,000 in damages was paid, and the stolen items and money were returned. Some friends of the family even dismissed the events as rich kids' sick jokes. To avoid any issues with Lyle attending Princeton, and because Eric was underage, the father decided that Eric would take the blame. He received probation, as well as compulsory counseling. Kitty was referred to Beverly Hills psychologist Dr. Jerome Ozil to work with her son, who continued to work with Eric for some time to come. Eric transferred to Beverly Hills High School, while Lyle went back east to study at Princeton University. Aside from these incidents, it seemed that Kitty and he just wanted the best for their children, who were given opportunities to acquire the best things in life. But their high expectations were further tarnished when Lyle was caught cheating in Psychology 101 at Princeton. Despite every effort by his father to convince Princeton authorities to reinstate Lyle, he was expelled from the university. The suspension lasted a year. Extremely proud to have a son attend a top Ivy League school. This incident deeply disappointed Jose. To save face, he urged his son to stay in Princeton during the suspension to avoid having to explain the situation to anyone in Los Angeles. The squeaky clean facade was beginning to reveal signs of hidden flaws. Lyle returned to Los Angeles and was given a job at his father's company. His job performance quickly had him living up to the stereotypical expectations of a rich, spoiled kid who had everything handed to him. By not working hard, he earned a bad reputation among his colleagues. His undermining work ethic included slacking off, tardiness, leaving early to play tennis, and showing very little interest in his overall duties, and allegedly causing a major rift between Lyle and his father. Jose paid for an abortion for one of Lyle's girlfriends. This caused Lyle to become infuriated about not being allowed to deal with his own problems. He moved out of the main house and into the guest house. After all these disappointments, reports revealed that there were some indications that Jose had planned to reveal or to revise his will, growing tired of financing his sons. One day, Kitty received a call from Lyle. He was irate and verbally abusive over the phone. What was expressed is unknown, but the call from the guest house to the main house reportedly took just a few days before the Mendez's lives would take a turn for the worst. On August 10th, 20th, 1989, armed with shotguns and an alibi, Lyle and Eric entered the Beverly Hills mansion den, raised their weapons, and fired. Both their mother and father were murdered in cold blood. In an attempt to stage a grisly scene to appear as though it had been gang-related, the brothers shot both parents in the kneecaps. Police received a 911 call from Eric, whose hysteria and grief during the call seemed so genuine that it left very little room to even consider the brothers had anything to do with it. But the convincing didn't stop there. During questioning, 
the brothers went on to suggest that the crime could have been mafia-related, and that they were at the movies at the time of the murder, presenting movie tickets to support their alibi. Within days, Lyle would hire bodyguards to protect them, claiming to be afraid that they could be killed by the same people who killed their parents. Furthering the act, the eulogy given by Eric was described as such a strong performance that it was enough to keep the brothers from being questioned for a long while. This led to police to investigate Jose's business ties, and while the investigators were on a wild goose chase, the brothers' spending habits became suspicious. They dished out large amounts of money on Rolexes, Porsche, and a Jeep Wrangler. Eric also purchased a $50,000 a year tennis coach and spent $40,000 to put on a rock concert. With a promoter that ended up cheating him out of the deal, Lyle also purchased a restaurant in Princeton. In total, the boys spent $700,000 within six months of their parents' death. In March 1999, seven months after the murder, the brothers were arrested. The circumstances of how evidence began to be collected against them was extraordinary, as well as morally and illegally very complicated. The boys were outed by a woman named, um, I'm not even sure I can say this right, Judalyn Smith, who had been in a relationship with Eric Mendez's therapist, whom Eric was still working with up to this point. The information she provided broke the case wide open, and not only did what she revealed provide hard evidence against the boys, but it left Dr. Rosale's own integrity to be questioned. After breaking off her relationship with Ozeal, Smith went to the police to tell them what she had learned during her relationship. She claimed she had been standing outside of his office when she heard Eric confess the murder to him. She told police a significant amount of information in regards to the murder. She said she knew that the shotguns had been purchased in San Diego and that the boys used fake IDs to buy them. She also knew that Ozeal had tapes recollecting his sessions with Eric and Lyle on October 31st and November 2nd, 1989, when she had heard confessions. In addition, she knew that he had a tape of their session from December 11th of the same year. In an ironic twist, ultimately during the trial, Smith was used as a witness for the defense in an attempt to discredit Dr. Ozeal, who was the prosecution's main witness. Despite originally attempting to conceal his incriminating tapes to protect the boys, the courtroom also learned that during the time, Dr. Ozeal had begun working as Eric's therapist. He was already on a five-year probation for unethical conduct after creating a verbal contract with a patient who was unable to pay his bill to do over 300 hours of manual labor. And by the time of the brother's trial, Ozeal had two complaints against him from two women, Smith and Alex Corey, causing his license to practice therapy to be suspended. Smith claimed that Ozeal had been manipulative in their relationship, playing games with her mind, and giving drugs to her that he was not licensed to prescribe for her. The Attorney General's charge read, This case involves a respondent, a psychologist, who engaged in sexual, social, and business relationships with two patients while he and the patients had a psychologist-patient relationship. In addition, the respondent disclosed professional confidences to one of the patients, furnished controlled substances without proper medical authorization or supervision to both patients, and forged the name of the physician in a letter. Because of the circumstances in which his parents had been put him into therapy, Ozeal had Eric sign waivers of the usual 
confidentiality agreement so the doctor could share what he had learned with Jose and Kitty when necessary. It was not a traditional arrangement, and many doctors would not have agreed to breaking this type of confidentiality. But Jose Mendez, Menendez was a persistent man who had orchestrated it. Due to this, the defense would later claim that Eric could never feel safe to talk about being psychologically abused or physically molested by his father. Ozeal spent six long days on the stand, forced to defend his own credibility as well as testifying against the brothers, leaving some to feel that it was a diversionary tactic for the defense. Ozeal claimed that he'd hid the confession tapes and kept silent about them for fear that the brothers would retaliate against him, saying, I was of the firm belief that Eric and Lyle were planning to murder me. Ozeal recalled the session of Eric's confession, going on to say that Eric was feeling extremely agitated, depressed, and alienated over his parents' death to the point of being suicidal. He told Ozeal that he could see the scene of his parents' death and asked the doctor to take a walk because there's something that he wanted to tell him, tell him, but he didn't want to tell him in the office. According to Ozeal, on a park bench in Beverly Hills, Eric claimed that the plan began after he and his brother had watched a BBC program on television in which the lead character had killed his father. Investigators later learned that the programming was actually likely to be billionaire's Boys Club, which had aired on television three weeks before the murder. The similarities from the movie to the boys' behavior was so striking that they believed this to be an inspiration that Eric was referring to when he said BBC. In short, the film was about a group of Beverly Hills boys who murdered two people, one of which is their father. As further compelling evidence, the boys in the film drove the jeep and had Rolexes, which were some of the first purchases the brothers made after the murder. And ironically enough, the film was released by Live Entertainment, of which Jose had been the CEO. Also in the confession, Eric told Ozeal that while Lyle wanted to wait to carry out the murders so they'd have more time to plan it, he decided they needed to commit the murders soon or they would lose their nerve and mentioned buying shotguns with stolen identification. Ozeal also said that Eric confessed that the reason they had killed their mother too was because they couldn't imagine a scenario in which they'd kill their father without also killing her. She would be a witness. As deeply unhappy as she was, she would be hopelessly lost without their father. Despite the emotional damage he had caused her as well, but Ozeal wasn't the only person Eric confessed the murders to. He also confided in his friend Craig Signorelli, who later coordinated with investigators after they showed up at his door, telling him that Mendez was a suspect. He eventually agreed to wear a wire to get Eric's confession on the tape, but the attempt was unsuccessful. Eric denied everything. The year before the murder, Craig and Eric had collaborated on a screenplay <clears throat> about a rich young man who murders his parents in their home. The judge would not allow the screenplay to be used as evidence during the trial. But it was, however, still a troubling marker of the future crime, as well as the first time Craig had ever heard Eric make this sort of confession. About a week before the separate trials began simultaneously, the defense would announce their strategy that the boys had killed their parents in self-defense after suffering years of psychological, physical, and sexual abuse under their care. 
the defense claimed that Eric had been sexually molested by his father for 12 years, between the age of 6 and 18. They claimed that the most recent molestation had happened just a week before his parents were killed. The defense painted their picture of Jose Menendez as a man who was not known to be kind and in fact had many enemies. He was also said to be known to humiliate and threaten people at work and to have an overall toxic sense of machismo. In addition, he was known to be a serial adulterer who had a mistress for eight years on top of other girlfriends. Meanwhile, the prosecution, who sought the death penalty, argued that the brothers killed their parents so they could claim the 214, er, so they could claim the 14 million estate that was their inheritance. Ultimately, the defense was convincing enough to get a hung jury for both juries, resulting in a deadlock mistrial. The case attracted a media frenzy and became so high profile by the second trial, cameras were prohibited. In the second trial, brothers were prosecuted together with one defense team and a single jury. At this point, it was no longer about whether the brothers committed the crime, but why they done, did it. The defense leaned in heavily on their argument of sexual abuse, but to no avail. The jurors convinced the brothers of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And then his brothers both rejected the death penalty in favor of a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. For years to come, the brothers would be housed in separate facilities and were only able to communicate through letters to one another. It wouldn't be until 2018 they'd finally be reunited when Lyle was transferred to a San Diego prison where Eric had spent the last five years. While Lyle was transferred to the prison in February, the brothers didn't see each other until April when he was transferred into Eric's section, a section that allows inmates to interact. Brothers saw each other for the first time since 1996, and upon their reunion, reportedly came to tears as they shared an embrace. Menendez's brothers are bonded for life, not only by blood, but by the blood on their hands. And that is all we have for today's episode of Shit Out of Luck. Let us know your thoughts on this case. Uh, leave a comment in the comment section below. Be sure to hit subscribe and like this video if you like it. Follow us on Twitter, True Crime NS, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Follow us on Twitter at True Crime NS. Like us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps. Send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash true crime never sleeps slash message. Tune in next week for an all new episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.